Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The last 75 years of work with psychiatric medications has, for the most part, focused on GABA, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Then, little by little, other molecules began to find real places in our toolkits, and now we see the arrival of multitudes of other potential receptors and molecules that we need to understand. One of them that you may read about is something called TAR, T-A-A-R. We're not going to talk about that one today. Another one, which is not as new, is glutamate. So today we're going to talk about glutamate. Rakesh Jain is a psychiatrist in Texas. He is quite an excellent teacher and quite a knowledgeable person, and he generously agreed to join us to take us through a bit of the history and the chemistry and the potential use of glutamate. Dr. Jain, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, and please do call me Rakesh. Okay. One of the things that is a bit confusing that people might not understand, we see sometimes that there is the term glutamine and glutamate. What are the differences? Are they both amino acids? Are they clinically related to what we're talking about? You see a lot of glutamine for sale on over-the-counter markets. What's the difference? They are pretty different substances, and I will get into it in just a second or two, but I really love the preamble you offered to this podcast, that being glutamate is becoming something of great interest to psychiatry. Our listeners might be wondering, why is that, and why have I not heard about glutamate before to the extent that it deserves to be? And perhaps the reason for that, and I'll give you seven reasons, actually, is that we've not appreciated that glutamate in many ways is glorious. It is actually a neurotransmitter as well as an amino acid. And here are some things to remember before we jump into the conversation. Did we know, for example, that glutamate is the single most potent neurotransmitter in the entire brain? There's nothing else more potent than glutamate. And by the way, it is also the single most commonly found neurotransmitter in the brain. So just the first two things should grab our attention. It is very potent. It's also the single most commonly found neurotransmitter. It also plays an exceptionally large role, as I'm sure we'll talk about, in learning, cognition, and of course, in mood. In addition, the fourth reason we in the psychiatry world should be interested in this substance is it is the major contributor to increased synaptogenesis and neuronal plasticity. And the fifth reason it is the major source of the creation of its single greatest antagonist, which is GABA. A large amount of GABA in the human brain actually comes from glutamate, glutamate being excitatory and GABA being inhibitory. And how very democratic of glutamate to create its own single greatest antagonist, almost as if trying to create a system of checks and balances. But there is trouble in paradise. And the sixth thing I would like for our listeners to appreciate is glutamate when excess can be quite neurotoxic. And then, of course, the final challenge for us is it's not as well understood as it deserves to be. It was only a little over 25 years ago that glutamate was even appreciated as a neurotransmitter. The challenge was there was just so much glutamate in the human brain. We just thought of it as nothing but an amino acid just running around doing its other jobs, but it was only 
less than three decades ago did we appreciate that this actually is a neurotransmitter of the potency that I talked about and the frequency that I talked about. Your question had to do with glutamate, glutamine, and glutamine is in some ways a precursor as well as a byproduct of glutamate synthesis. So glutamine does not appear in itself to have any significant receptor activity, but it is an important part of the life cycle of glutamate. And therefore, I'm a little bit worried that the -the over-the-counter medications you were talking about, the -the over-the-counter substances, glutamine, may not have appreciable activity in us human beings, but that remains to be determined. You mentioned a couple terms, and they may seem self-explanatory, but I thought that perhaps people might not know the differences. What is the difference between an excitatory and an inhibitory neurotransmitter? Certainly. One isn't better than the other. One isn't worse than the other. An excitatory neurotransmitter is one that when it arrives at a receptor, attaches itself to it, it increases the likelihood of that particular neuron to fire. In other words, to go into activity. That, of course, would be excitatory. Glutamate is the prime excitatory neurotransmitter in the human brain. GABA, on the other hand, when it arrives at a receptor, binds to it, it actually decreases the chances of that particular neuron firing. As a result, we call it inhibitory. And if you think about it, it's just like driving your car. The braking system is no more important than the accelerating system. Both of them must work in harmony for us to get to our destination safely. The human brain also needs a very good balance between excitatory and inhibitory activities. In psychiatric illnesses, this balance is sometimes not quite where it needs to be. One can quickly see how complex this can get, but it really is understandable if you walk through it piece by piece. Let's look at some of the concerns here. When you use the term neurotoxin, it almost sounds frightening. What does psychiatry do? What's our approach to something that's obviously so essential, but still a neurotoxin? Does it kill our cells? What role does it play? A very good question, and you're right. Thinking of it as a neurotoxin is a challenge, but I might encourage the audience to think along with us. Is water a toxin or is water life-giving? And the truth of the matter is water, when not present in enough amount in the human body, is very damaging to us. The same water that gave us life, when it's present in far greater amount than we need, can be equally damaging. I would say the same thing about oxygen. Oxygen in very low concentration is why people struggle for breath when they have COPD. But the same oxygen, if it's given in excess amount, can often lead to a baby lying in an incubator from developing significant challenges in their lungs. Oxygen is not good or bad. It is the right amount that is good or bad. And glutamate is exactly the same way. There is good evidence if there is not enough. Psychiatric challenges are precipitated. If there's too much, challenges are precipitated besides other things. Our goal as clinicians is not to think of it as a pure neurotoxin because it isn't, but to appreciate that excess amount of this and for that matter, any other neurotransmitter can be quite damaging. The fact does remain that glutamate, because of its ubiquity and because of its sheer potency, 
I don't think the safety margins are that large, say, compared to, for example, serotonin. So those of us who offer glutamate-based intervention would probably need to be very cautious, be extremely educated, which is what we're doing on this podcast, and not only not be frightened of glutamate, but I suggest embrace it as clinically we might be able to create changes for the patient, particularly suffering from a mood disorder that before now we have been hampered in doing so. So I want to get the audience to become cautious, but to be highly optimistic and to be aware that a greater knowledge base of glutamate can make us profoundly better clinicians. I so agree. Let's jump into a specific. It has been suggested that glutamate is one of the problematic molecules in the development of dementia. A lot of psychiatric concern is related to loss of cellular function. And what do we know about dementia and glutamate? Quite a bit. Glutamate is not just for neurons, and it is rather important we quickly establish that even though in psychiatry we have been led to believe that all of life revolves around neurons, for every 10 cells found in the human brain, only one of them is a neuron. Nine of them are glia. And I would like to alert the audience immediately that astrocytes are actually the home base to a lot of glutamate activity and astrocyte health is strongly implicated in the pathogenesis of various dementias. There are actually five problems that go wrong, if you will, when glutamate and astrocyte interaction doesn't occur well. I do think we focused on neurons and we shall continue to do so, but astrocytes are so important that 21st century may be the century of astrocytes. So there are five challenges when glutamate is impaired in astrocytes. The first one is molecular homeostasis is dramatically impaired. So water transport and homeostasis, a neurotransmitter homeostasis can be impaired, and that includes everything from GABA to all the monomies that you and I literally grew up with. There's other challenges. Systemic homeostasis is impaired, and that's why we see so often sleep impairment in such patients. Even organ homeostasis, that's the third challenge that we see. So the control over blood-brain barrier and the lymphatic system in the brain is impaired when astrocytes and glutamate are colliding with each other. And the fourth of this is metabolic homeostasis. Let's not forget that the major scaffolding for our neurons are not neurons. Astrocytes, the number one cell in the human brain. And then finally, this is what I think will get our audience excited, is glutamate and astrocyte interact to either create neurogenesis or to harm it. They're also involved in synaptogenesis and synaptic maintenance and the necessary synaptic elimination. And finally, synaptic plasticity. One of the statistics is that glutamate is involved in 90% of the synaptic connections in our brain, 90%. Yeah. And so what you're referring to here is another mechanism, and this is such a core substance to our, to our essence, to our being. Fascinating as we're learning about it. It's fascinating. And I agree, we don't talk enough about the astrocytes. We really don't. They get lost. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really been a challenge. That is perhaps a blind spot in psychiatry. We often get enamored 
started with either one neurotransmitter or one particular cell line. And I, I commend you on the comment you just made, which is broaden our horizons. Let's think about more neurotransmitters. Let's think about more cells. Because you're right, about 90% of the activity you're mentioning is primarily driven by the substance. And I'll add one more thing that I think will get you even more excited. For example, norepinephrine transporters, serotonin transporters, and opioid transmitters, which, by the way, we need all of them to work in harmony in the human brain, are all downstream effects of optimum glutamate transmission. So glutamate is not just, if you will, a substance of importance in its own right, but I've often compared glutamate to a great concert master. And a great concert master doesn't just want himself or herself to look superior, but to conduct a full orchestra so that harmony is established between all the players in the neurotransmitter world that we just talked about. Our knowledge of the number of players is increasing. The number of players have always been there. One of the things that we need to at least mention, and it gets very complex as much of this can quickly, is the notion of the N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. It's also known as NMDA. It's been thrown around as being instrumental in a lot of the brain functioning. We'll just use it that way. Can you give us a complicated, and when I say give us a brief introduction to it, that may not be fair, but let's try to at least bring it to this and what role does glutamate have with the NMDA? Be happy to. Before we jump into it, let's also remember that one of the prime movers and shakers in the world of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, actually is glutamate. True. So how does it exert its effect? And you are completely right. It's through its various receptors. And what I can do, and I think we can do it in a way that is highly understandable, is to do a quick classification of the glutamate receptors. Okay. So let's break it into two because there are only two forms of glutamate receptors. The one is called inotrophic. The other one is called metabotrophic, right? Inotrophic, metabotrophic. And metabotrophics come in three groups, group one, group two, group three. There'll be another time to talk about the various metabotrophic receptors. I think today we should focus on the inotrophic receptors. You mentioned one, NMDA, which I have no doubt at the moment, for all the right reasons, is a superstar in the world of glutamate. But every superstar needs a supporting actor or actress to make it shine, right? So let's not forget the importance of the AMPA receptor, A-N-P-A. The NMDA receptor is thought to be heavily implicated at least two major psychiatric illnesses. The first one is schizophrenia. And there is a hypothesis emerging called the NMDA receptor hypofunction hypothesis of schizophrenia. And by the way, also implicated in major depression, but major depression that simply won't respond to serotonin or serotonin norepinephric medication. Now, what NMDA receptor also does, besides living on various parts of the glutamate transmission system, this is key. This is really key. NMDA receptors also live on GABA receptors, known as the interneuron GABA receptors. So when we offer a patient an NMDA antagonist, immediately one then goes, oh, I gave the person an NMDA antagonist, therefore I'm decreasing glutamate production. Oh, but that's not true. What we're doing is we're giving NMDA antagonists to a cell that is inhibitory. 
we talked about before, GABA is inhibitory. So think about it this way. If there is someone driving a car who has the brake excessively pressed, then the car is not going to go very fast. Somehow, if I can take their foot off the brake, you can imagine without the brake, the car is going to go faster. So NMDA receptor antagonism actually for temporary reasons increases the outflow of the glutamate system primarily to the postsynaptic AMPA receptors. So yes, it can seem confusing, but there's a beautiful logic to why NMDA receptor is so important. And the primary action we exert on NMDA receptor to help our patients, particularly with mood disorders, is NMDA antagonism. Interesting. We are going to run out of time soon, and I do want to touch on a few other things that are very important. One of the things conceptually, and you made an interesting reference to it at the beginning, about how glutamate is related through metabolism to GABA. And it seems to be check and balances. And we don't often enough talk about the incredible, intriguing, amazing set of checks and balances that go on in our biochemistries. So could you just elaborate a little bit more on the process that glutamate turns into GABA? So you've got an excitatory and an inhibitory, an amazing situation. Your thoughts, please. <laughs> it is, isn't it? This body that we live in, this brain that we homo sapiens possess, is truly a thing to be beholden as a miracle. It really is. Think about it. This brain that we possess not only knows how to excite neurons, but also knows that there'd be great challenges if we let these neurons run amok. Glutamate is a neurotransmitter that believes in democracy in a system of checks and balances. Glutamate and glutamine often then become in the presynaptic neurons, but also in astrocytes, the precursor chemical that our brain uses to produce GABA. So there's GABA stores, and when the excitatory activity is excess, guess what happens? There's more GABA production, more GABA firing, and the tone of glutamate comes down. And by the same token, if GABA is overactive, guess what? Glutamate starts firing more to bring things in balance. And this is why I'm going to make a strong plea to our listeners today not to think of glutamate as something that only psychopharmacology can alter. There's now very good evidence that both meditation, particularly mindful meditation, and physical exercise doing significantly increase the harmony between glutamate and GABA and do it very rapidly. Medications are one of the ways that we can alter this for the patient's benefit, but let's not ignore the great importance of the two interventions I just mentioned. This is such an increasing theme in psychiatry, the importance of exercise and diet, and this would open up a door that you and I could walk into and we'd not be able to get out of that room for many hours. True. It just brings again to the amazing design and functioning of our brain, just amazing. In the name of time, which I often hate to use, where is psychiatry going with glutamate? We had mentioned that it is a factor in schizophrenia, it's being theorized as a factor in depressions. What is psychiatry hoping to do with it? Do we have any tools we can use a glutamate process in the amelioration or reduction or prevention of a psychiatric issue? Absolutely. About 30 years ago, under the leadership of NIMH, one of the major 
through the mate interventions, that being ketamine, was researched and the studies are very promising. I've no doubt you have seen many of those studies. Ketamine, while it is still an off-label use of the substance that treats major depression, and interestingly and increasingly for anxiety disorders that are refractory to other treatments, it's being used more and more so through various routes, intravenous, sublingual, intramuscular, subcutaneously, etc. So that is being studied. I don't anticipate we will ever get at the approval for it, but one of its isomers, which is S-ketamine, has been developed for the treatment of TRD, treatment-resistant depression, being given through the intranasal route. S-ketamine, which has a brand name now of Spravato, has both been studied and been approved by the FDA for the treatment of major depression in conjunction with antidepressants. So the truth of the matter is last year, and I believe it was last year, became a watershed moment for psychiatry where we received our very first direct NMDA intervention for the treatment of psychiatric illness. Psychiatry is not resting on its laurels. We actually have a number of other compounds in development. Uh, you're probably very familiar with dextromethorphan. Yes, the dextromethorphan is also, guess what, an NMDA antagonist. It's being developed and we shall see where that goes. There's also studies looking at laughing gas, nitrous oxide, which also happens to be, yes, an NMDA antagonist. Studies going on looking at its potential use as an antidepressant. There's many, many more drugs for the development and use in psychiatric illnesses that are primarily glutamate-based drugs. The conversation we're having is unusually not just interesting, it's of great importance as glutamate may be the heralding of a new dawn in psychiatry. It's very exciting and it's a wonderful opportunity for us to see real science making real progress. Rakesh Jain is a psychiatrist in Texas and at the beginning I told you about how wonderful a teacher he is and he has again demonstrated that to us, sir. This is fascinating. It opens more doors and includes closes, which is what we want to do. Thank you so much for being with us. It was great. It's my pleasure.